want to ask you to turn to Psalm 34. And as you turn there, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning? Psalm 34. We're going to read the entire psalm. So follow along in your copy of God's Word or your app. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray. Father, we sang this morning that you are good to us. And we acknowledge that this morning. We want to publicly confess that you have been good to us. You are good to us. And we know that you will continue to be good to us. We also sang that our desire is to follow you forever. May that be our response to your goodness to us. That we desire more than anything else to follow you forever. That uh, whatever obstacles, impediments, problems come into our lives, that we would seek to follow you forever, knowing that you are good in spite of and sometimes through those troubles. Lord, we we see in this psalm uh, that, that you desire us to taste and to see that you're good. And Lord, this morning I pray for any who have not tasted, who have yet to see that you are good, that they would do that this morning, that they would partake of you and become partakers of your divine nature, that this morning they would be those who are blessed because they take refuge in you. Lord, this morning would you speak to your people through your word, Would you um, illuminate the text to us? Would you open our eyes? Would you help us to see what you have for us? May this passage not be uh, merely intellectual. Uh, May it not be 
um, merely uh, review of things that we know. But may it be a time of worship as we are reminded of who you are and as we learn new things about who you are. So Lord, this morning we ask that you would do good to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, In the early 80s, uh, there was a book written by Rabbi Harold Kushner uh, entitled, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Uh, you may have read that. You may have seen that. Um, it is not an, un, uh, an unknown phrase. We, we've heard that before. Uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, the rabbi came to the conclusion in his book that the problem of evil and the problem of good in this world is basically God would like to Stop bad things from happening, but he just can't quite do it. And that is not the conclusion we want to come to this morning. And we want to go throughout the scriptures and talk about the attribute this morning of God's goodness. We're nearing the end of this series on the attributes of God. And this morning we want to explore what it means for God to be good. Now we use the word good in all kinds of ways. I want you to think about ways that you use the word good and other synonyms that go along with it. Right? When, when your kids leave parents, you say, have a good day, good time. All right? um, we, we walk up to people, complete strangers, good friends. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, we talk about uh, our sports teams and whether or not they're playing well. And we say they're a good team or they're a bad team. We make all kinds of decisions and we make all kinds of judgments. And we use the word good in lots of different ways. And that's the case as well in the scriptures. There are many different words in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that can be translated good. They mean something like good or kind or generous or morally right. And so this this category, this attribute is often seen as, as an umbrella category that includes some other attributes. And so this morning we'll talk about goodness and see that it's, it's, it's used generally, a little bit more uh, vaguely at sometimes, to talk about a vast array of things that God has done for us. So we want to see that this morning, and I've entitled today's message, God is good all the time. And maybe, maybe some of you grew up saying that in church, someone would say, God is good, and you would respond and say, all the time, okay? So that's where uh, that, that comes from. We want to, to acknowledge that this morning because we have no problem thinking that God is good when everything's going fine, right? Uh, we have a lot of, of young parents in this church. Um, when baby comes, when first baby comes, it is nerve-wracking. Uh, it's a little bit scary, but when doctors and nurses say everything's good, everything's fine, God is good. Of course he is. Everything is good to go. Baby's healthy. Mama's feeling okay. Dad is relieved. There are friends and family. And things are good. When we open our closets, like we did this morning, no doubt things are good. Um, I, I would be, I think we'd be hard pressed to say that we lack many things um, in this country. Open your closets, open your chest, your chest of drawers, your dresser. We have an abundance of things. Things are good. But of course, the problem comes when things aren't so good. Uh, and this is what we want to talk about this morning. It is not going to be uh, a philosophical argument about the problem of evil, although we will touch on that. We'll leave that for your community groups this week. 
Um, but we are want to, wanting to delve into this topic. A.W. Tozer uh, wrote a, a small book called Knowledge of the Holy, and he uh, goes through the attributes of God in two, three, four, five-page chapters. Uh, there's an expanded work uh, that he has in two volumes on the attributes of God as well. And this is what he says um, in that book, The Attributes of God. The goodness of God is a necess- necessity to moral sanity. If God is not good, then there can be no distinction between kindness and cruelty. And heaven can be hell, and hell, heaven. So as we approach this topic, um, it is not merely warm and fuzzy. And you know, it can be warm and fuzzy. Um, I, I think that that's okay. We see in the Psalms and we see in other places that we are to take refuge uh, under the shadow of his wing. In the shadow of a wing, it's warm and fuzzy. But we're not always in the shadow of God's wing. And so it is not always warm and fuzzy. In fact, uh, A.W. Tozer goes on to say this about the attributes of God. He says, The greatness of God, some of the topics we covered at the beginning of this series, infinitude, eternality, um, those things, the greatness of God rouses fear within us. But His goodness encourages, encourages us not to be afraid of Him. To fear and not be afraid, that is the paradox of faith. We know the Scripture tells us to fear God. That's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. Um, but we are also uh, not to be afraid to approach the throne. In fact, Hebrews would tell us that we're to approach God's throne with confidence. To march into God's throne room knowing He is for us and He is good. And so this is, this is where we are going. So why don't you get your notes out. Uh, we have tried to put together a definition of God's goodness and again, it is a general category. Depending on what version of the Bible you have, some of the, the, the phrases and the text I'm going to read this morning may not have the word goodness. It may have kindness. It may have loving kindness. It may have love. It may have charity, depending on what version you're using. And so this is a broad topic, and so I have a fairly broad definition. God's goodness is his personal, kind, and constant generosity toward his creatures. His goodness is the standard of moral excellence by which every person in act is judged. So that first underlying word is generosity. And that seems to be, as, as I studied through all the uses of the word good and goodness, it seemed that the, the overwhelming, well, maybe not overwhelming, maybe the, the theme of God's goodness is this generosity towards people, towards his creatures, towards his creation, in fact. And then also, the second part is his goodness is the standard of moral excellence. And so this kind of covers some of the ways that we use good today, and it also um, allows us to understand how the Bible is using good. We are separated by thousands of years from the context, the peoples of this book. And that's why we need to understand what the Bible means by good, not by what Southern California culture means by good. So there you see um, a few words just for fun. Um, the, the dominant word in Hebrew is tov. Uh, if you uh, are familiar at all with uh, Jewish culture, or, uh, or if your only familiarity is fiddler on the roof, then you will know the phrase mazel tov. That's the word here, tov, tov. It, it means good. Um, it is used throughout the scriptures. When we go to Israel in two months, we will say boker tov, good morning. We'll say lila tov. Good night. It's, it's the word for good, and it has a broad uh, application across um, the Hebrew scriptures. It can mean pleasing, it can mean valuable, suitable, morally righteous. 
that's just a, a little taste of the, the range of meaning that it has. When we move to the New Testament, uh, God used um, writers that, that wrote in, in Greek. And so we have two main words. Again, there's many more than this, even that the New Testament uses, but these are the two dominant words. Kalos, it means beautiful, but not merely in the sense of, of looks. Uh, it means beautiful in the sense of goodness or excellence. So not merely talking about a person's physical beauty, but talking about the beauty of something that is morally right or that is done correctly. It is beautiful. So when you hear music played really, really well, it is not just good, it is beautiful. But it is also done well, so it is, it is good. And so that's the way that the word kalos is used. And then agathos is a physical or moral good or fertile or perfect and so we begin to see this is more of a descriptor of things that we see and touch and feel and know. This is um, the range of meaning. And this is where we tried to get the definition from. As well in scripture, several things are called good related to God. God is good. Um, it, we, are, we know that from the scriptures. But God's law is called good. God's name is called good. His promises are called good. And we know from the beginning of this book that his creation was very good. And so this is where we see God and his goodness. And we've got to explore this because this goes in many different ways. So get ready to turn in your Bibles to a lot of different places. But this first point I found to be so general that I didn't know what scriptures to put under it. And so I hope that the scriptures we go to for the rest of the points will help to outline point number one. God's goodness is personal. God's goodness is personal. It is not abstract or separate from him. God's goodness is personal. It is not abstract or separate from him. This is important because sometimes we can begin to talk about good and evil as these kind of abstract philosophical things that we like to debate. And they're kind of floating out there. Um, God's goodness is not, is not detached from his person. This is an attribute. Um, he not only does good, he is good. And so it is a personal thing that God is good. He, he cannot be good and be detached from the thing or the, the, the thing that he is saying to be good, that he is showing his goodness to, he must be personally involved. He is a personal God. So we must understand that. Let's not separate the goodness of God as some kind of way out there, kind of untouchable thing with this God that we worship and love. Um, God is personal and his goodness is a personal attribute. It is not abstract or separate from him. And we'll see that as we go through the scriptures. Turn in your Bibles to the very first book, Genesis, to the very first chapter, where the story begins. It's important to see that God is good in Genesis, and he's good all the way through to the end of Revelation. Turn to the book of Genesis, and this is point number two, God's creation was good. God's creation was good. Famous words, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We see chaos. We see unorganized matter. In verse 3, And God said, now God speaks, 
let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was, what's the word? Good. That's verse 4. Look at verse 10. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was? Verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was? Verse 18, let's keep rolling. To rule, he's talking about the, the light, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that this was also, he continues on to say that this was good in verse 21 when he creates uh, certain animals on the fifth day. Then on the sixth day, God creates the beasts of the earth and he saw that it was good. And at the end of day six, he breaks from the routine and creates man and woman. He breathes into their nostrils the breath of life. He not only creates them, but he makes them in his own image and likeness. We are like God in a way that the rest of creation cannot be. Go to the end, the very end of chapter 1. After looking across this creation... God saw everything that he had made, and behold, this time it was very good. Very good. See, God's creation was good. And how could it be otherwise? Because if we're saying God is good, then what he makes must be good. And we see in all of these things that God has done in making the heavens and the earth, it was very, very good. And we know that. Uh, we live in an age of travel. How many of you have been outside of the borders of the United States of America in the last year? Okay. How many of you have been to a national park in the United States of America in the last year? State park. Beautiful outdoor place. Good. All right. Some of you are watching too much TV. Maybe you were watching one of those uh, BBC documentaries about the earth and seeing the goodness of God's creation. We, we know that when we see creation. Um, I remember the first time I went to Yosemite. Well, I, I don't remember the first time. I was six weeks old. I remember the first time that I saw Yosemite as a person that could remember it and coming through the tunnel, right, and breaking out, and there's Yosemite Valley. Um, there's, you've got to be either looking at your Game Boy or totally, completely messed up to not just go, wow. You see the, the massive granite. The, you see the huge domes. You see the trees. You see sometimes clouds that just outline the valley so well. It is beautiful. God's creation is good. How many of you have been, in, been to the Grand Canyon? I didn't get to go until, I think it was about a year or two after Amy and I got married. And... Um, we got there as night was falling. We kind of see the canyon a little bit. Next day, got out of our tent, went to the, to the Grand Canyon. I couldn't quite grasp that that was real. Anybody think that that was like a painting? Like it, it doesn't look like it's actually there in front of you. It's like you feel like there's something, they put up a screen. It is unbelievably beautiful. It is good. God's creation is good. And think about this. What happens in Genesis 3? Men and man and woman, they take from the tree, they eat, they disobey God, and what gets cursed? Not just man and woman, not just the snake, but the ground, the creation. 
So there's a, there's a fracture that has occurred. So just think that in a sin-torn world, a world headed towards destruction, that the beauty and goodness that exists in a broken world looks like this. Imagine what the original creation looked like and then imagine what the new heavens and the new earth will look like where sin will not be present. We have a lot to look forward to. A lot of good hikes, I foresee, in the new heavens and the new earth. God's creation was good. This is repeated throughout scriptures. I just focused on Genesis there, but we see throughout that God's creation is very good. Number three. Let's look at this aspect of God's goodness. God is good to all. God is good to all, particularly in his generous provision. Uh, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. While you're going there, I'm going to read Psalm 145 verse 9 to you. Actually, 8 and 9. Reflection of a passage that Pastor Ron has taken us to several times in this series. Echoes Exodus 34, but Psalm 145, 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And then it says this, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. And then when we get to to the book of Matthew, we see that on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to His people and saying, Look, it's, it's great to love your friends and your family, but... I tell you, love your enemies. Verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This aspect of God's goodness shows us that God is good to not just those who believe in him. God is good to all people in various ways and at various times. But God provides Think of the rain we just received this weekend. That is a good thing, is it not? Um, it is good for uh, the farms that are all over this state. It is good for uh, the mountains where it snowed, for the economy, for all of those who are going to enjoy the snow. Um, it is good. God did not just rain on all the churches and the church members in Southern California. There weren't individual clouds watering those people that God likes. God sent the rain on the land. And he sends his reign on the evil and the good. And the point being made here is that God does not only do good, act in a, in a manner that show his goodness to just his people. He's good to all people. And so we ought to be as well. It says to love your enemies. See, see God does not withhold reign necessarily from his enemies. There are times where no doubt we see in the scriptures that God sends a famine. That God withholds the reign. We think of Elijah withholding the rain for three and a half years. And yet, for the most part, God shows his generous provision in providing the rain, in providing food, in providing fill-in-the-blank. God is good to all. In, in Acts 14, why don't you turn there real quick. Acts 14, Paul is on uh, one of his missionary journeys. And Paul and Barnabas make their way to Lystra. They heal a man. And the people of the region think that they have the gods among them. They think that Barnabas is Zeus and that Paul, the speaker, is Hermes, the messenger god. And so they begin to worship. They get the priest. They go get some oxen to, to slaughter, to sacrifice. And, and Paul and Barnabas 
are, are distressed. And they begin to take that opportunity to preach to the people. And they, they begin to say, we're men like you. Verse 15. Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea that all is in them. He appeals to creation. Then he says, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Verse 17. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul's point is to say, you knew about God, even though this is the first time you're hearing the gospel. Why, how'd you know him? Because you, you, you sensed his generosity. You saw his goodness in the rains that came and the fruitful abundance of your farms and your trees. God shows his goodness to all people through his provision, his generous provision. But not only that, point number four, God is uniquely good to those, well, that's not good English. Wow. God is uniquely good to those whom he has adopted. Not on whom. God is uniquely good to those whom he has adopted. There are places throughout scripture where we see this, but this is just logical as we think through um, adoption as the metaphor, right? God has adopted us as his sons and daughters. Um, think about the goodness of the act of adoption. We have um, that practice has, many of you are familiar with that. You've been adopted, you have adopted, you, you know someone that has, you've been involved um, in that process with somebody else. The adoption there is uniquely good to the people being adopted. Right, so in this sense, we gotta say, God is good to all. He's good to all, all men. But in a unique, special way, God is good to those whom He has adopted. Which only makes sense. Right? So, if Ron and Susie, let's say they adopt two children. Oh wait, they have. They've adopted these two kids. And brought them into their family after a long and arduous process. And here they are. Jeffrey and Alicia Johnson. They've been adopted into the family. Now, Ron and Susie, no doubt, are, are pretty good neighbors. And they've been pretty good to my kids. But there is a unique and special way in which they are good to their own children. Right? In a way that they ought to be good to them in ways they're not good to others. Um, they've been given special stewardship from God for those children. And so they are good to them in unique ways, in special ways. And it's the same with God. God has adopted those of us who have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is good uniquely to us in special ways. One of those ways that's not listed in your notes, but I'd like to take us to, is the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Go to Hebrews, chapter 12. This may not be the first thing you think of when you think of God being uniquely good, but it also works with adoption. Um, and... Days gone by when some of our older members were children. Um, this metaphor may not have worked as well. But nowadays it is very rare for other parents to discipline other kids. Um, and, and this is the argument made in Hebrews chapter 12. That God's discipline on his children proves that he is their father. And there's goodness in that. Look at Hebrews 12 starting in verse 7. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for what? Our good. God's discipline of his children is for our good. Why? That we may share his holiness. God disciplines his children, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, in a way that he does not do to those who do not believe. So, brothers and sisters, children of God, remember that God's discipline on you, though it's not pleasant, is a sign of his goodness to you. That he disciplines you because he's good, and he disciplines you for your good. That's what we have to rejoice in. Uh, I've heard this from, from kids in the youth group. I've heard this from people older than me. That when they look back on their children's dis- on their f- parents' discipline of them as children, they they see the goodness of their parents in that practice. I, for one, can say I am glad that my dad loved me enough and was good enough to me that he spanked me. Now, in the bedroom at the moment of weeping and gnashing of teeth, I did not sense much goodness from my father. And so it is with God. He says even there, the author of Hebrews says, it's not pleasant, but as we understand and look back, we see God's goodness in his discipline. So sidebar, parents, discipline your children knowing that it is good for them. And it shows them that God's discipline of them is also a good thing. That we reflect God's goodness in our discipline of our children. I would encourage you to look up those other passages. You're going to see lots of verses in here that we're not necessarily going to be able to go to. But that is um, one of them. That God is uniquely good to those, on, to those whom he has adopted. Number five. Declarations of God's goodness abound in the praises of his people. Declarations of God's goodness abound in the praises of his people. This is to show that the Psalms, the places in the scripture where worship of God is, is, is um, portrayed as a song or poetry, we see that is especially a place where God's goodness is held up. See, in, in God's, in God's uh, treatment of his people, they respond by saying, God, you're good. And that's throughout the Psalms. I mean, we, we could look at, at lots and lots of Psalms, but Psalm 136, right, that, that, sa- that says repeatedly over and over and over and over again that his steadfast love endures forever. The very first thing that is said is give thanks to the Lord for he is good. How's he good? His steadfast love endures forever. Go to Psalm 100, a short psalm, uh, a good one, one that is often read around Thanksgiving time. Psalm 100 exemplifies this, that the declarations of God's goodness often happen in the praises of his people. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. You see here again that 
that good, goodness, is more of a general category. It encompasses all kinds of things. God is good. And it's throughout the Psalms, it is portrayed as God being good. God, you are good. We love your goodness. Uh, one author said this, Declarations that God is good, acts with goodness, and is the source of all good, abound throughout Scripture and are usually tied to human gratitude and praise. So that the places that we most see God's goodness extolled, praised, worshipped are in the Psalms, are in the places where people are thankful, where people are grateful, where they're praising God and they, gra- they express their gratitude and their praise to God in saying that He is good. Number six, God is the standard. God is the standard. So goodness must be measured by God and His goodness. We have no other standard because from there everything becomes relative. Um, If we base our goodness comparing ourselves to other people, which unfortunately we often do to justify ourselves, we we can make goodness variable. And yet God is constant, He is immutable, He is unchanging, and He is the standard of good. This is echoed in Psalm 119, verse 68, where it simply says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And there are many other passages that we could go to that that show God's goodness as being the standard, the moral standard for goodness. But here we see that God is good. And not only that, but He does good. So God is the standard of our goodness. When we want to talk about the goodness of man or the goodness of God or the goodness of things, of acts, we must use God as a standard for what is good. Which brings us to a dilemma. <laughs> because if God is the standard for good, not only is He good, He's perfect. He's always good. God is good all the time. And so we have a problem. It's a good problem though. It's a good problem to have. If God is the standard of goodness, now we go into the field here of man's goodness. How do we talk about this? And this is a field littered with minds. <laughs> Okay, because we can go off track really quickly and the way we can do it often is by emphasizing one text or one scripture passage or one cluster of scripture passages over against others. And we never want to pit God's word against God's word. We we don't do that. God inspired the entire Bible, all 66 books. It is all God's word. God cannot contradict himself. So we must be careful that we take the whole counsel of God into account when we talk about the subject of man's goodness. Point number seven, man is not good. Man is not good. I I wrestled with how many points to put here and how many ways to phrase this. I've had man cannot be good. Man will never be good. Um, We'll leave it simply that man is not good. Again, this is also expressed in the Psalms. Psalm 14 tells us this as well as Psalm 53. Let me read it to you. First three verses say this, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. No doubt this is hyperbole in the mouth of David. But Paul 
quotes this psalm in Romans 3. And his point there is to say, Gentiles, Jews, all of us, there's none who does good. He uses this passage to condemn all men in the sight of God to say there's none who does good. There's none who seeks after God. And that is what he uses to introduce the subject of God's justification by faith through God's grace. So he sets it up by saying man cannot be good. Man is not good. There is none who is good. He uses that scripture to lead into the good news of the gospel. In addition, the cheery, bright book of Ecclesiastes tells us in 7, chapter 7, verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He just takes it as a given. Of course, there's no man who does good and never sins. We have a dilemma. 1 Kings 8, Solomon is praying to God at the dedication of the temple. And he, he basically says it's a joke. To think that there's anyone who does good. There's anyone who exists before God without sin. So man is not good. We know because of our fallen nature that in comparison with God and to God's standard, we cannot be good. We're unable to be good. And yet we must nuance this because in an absolute sense, we cannot be good. But in, in, a, in a sense of um, human good, of course we can be good. And there are levels of this, right? There are evil people in our world. And so if we, take, if we take just man and man's experience and we take that continuum, there is more good and less good. There's evil and there's ways of, of, of scaling that. So how do we think about man's goodness? Well, one way that this helps us is looking at point number eight. Point number seven says man is not good. Point number eight is man must be good. Man must be good. You've got... Scriptures littered throughout the Old and New Testaments that attest to this. Uh, but one of the best ways that we can see it is in a passage that's very familiar to most of us who've grown up in the church. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require? Require of you. But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Micah's point is, you know what you're supposed to do. You know what you're supposed to do. You know what's good. And here's what it is. It's to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So we're required to do good. And the New Testament speaks in in many letters. Paul specifically says this several times. He says, I know your goodness. He says, do good. Be good. (laughs) what's going on here? How do we reconcile these things? Well, we can't do much this morning, but we can delve into it a little bit. We see it, I think, in the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5.22. Fruit of the Spirit, we get down to goodness. The Spirit in the lives of Christians produces goodness. And the fruit of the Spirit is in contrast to the works of the flesh, which are not Good. We need the Spirit to enable us to do good. That is not to say that unbelievers cannot do good things. But Isaiah is clear to say that all the righteous acts are as filthy rags. Good works are as filthy rags. And so there are good works, but are they done in, in, in the Spirit? Are they done with proper motivation? Are they done for the glory of God? 
So in a sense, we have two levels of goodness. We have goodness on man's level only, and then we have goodness as God is the standard. So we, we must be good. And we know we're not. Romans 7, Paul wrestles with this. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want, he's wrestling with this. He goes back and forth. I can't do the good that I'm supposed to do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me? Who, who will save me? He says, praise be to Jesus Christ. Jesus has done it. Jesus will save us. And so we must be good. Galatians 6.10, the chapter after the fruit of the Spirit says to do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. So we're called to be good just like God is to all people, but we're called to especially be good to the people of God. We are going to be good to our brothers and sisters, primarily, first. Um, Romans 15.14 talks about the goodness that Paul sees and has heard about in um, the Roman people, the Roman church. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. What does he mean? Well, he says, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Meaning God has changed your lives and you're able to help each other because God is working good in you. So man can be good. Man can be good, but we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit in the end to ultimately do and be good. And one day, when sin is removed, when we have our new bodies and we're fully living in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be and do good. And we will not have inherent goodness like God does. Goodness is inherent to who He is, but we will have God's goodness transferred to us. We'll be dressed in it. We will be good because God has made us so. And that is the work of sanctification. God making us holy, making us good. There's so many other places we can go there, but here are some things that the scriptures say about our pursuit of goodness. God's children rejoice in the good and learn to do it. They seek it, are filled with it, become wise in it, persevere in it, and instruct others to do it. Those are just a few of the ways the scriptures tell us to pursue good. We're told to do these things. And that leads us right into the implications and response because this cannot just be an intellectual thing where we're trying to fix the problem of evil. Now that's not a, that's not a bad thing to, to, to wrestle with and to think through and discuss and debate. In fact, it's point number one <laughs> under implications. Uh, but this must be more than intellectual, philosophical pursuit of a solution to the problem. Um, often the problem of evil is not intellectual, it is emotional. How could God take my whatever? Fill in the blank. How could God allow 9-11? How could God allow 1.2 million babies to be aborted in America every year? How, th- this, is, this is the problem. It, becomes, it, is, it is an intellectual problem, but often we don't face it until it becomes an emotional problem in our lives, until we face it personally. So point number one, earthly suffering does not disprove God's goodness. Right, so so the the claim is made that if God is omnipotent, then He can stop evil from happening, and if God is good, He will want to stop evil from happening. But evil exists, so either God's not omnipotent or He's not good. And there's a flaw in that syllogism, um, and it's not using God as the standard of good; it is using our whims as a standard of good. And I, I'm not going to try to run through. Um, a step-by-step approach to, to knocking down someone's argument to the problem of evil because, again, often it is an emotional one. So you can give people answers from God's Word and you should give people answers from God's Word and you should reason it out. 
But, but how often do we hear reasonable things and reject it because we don't emotionally want to go there? Or we don't personally want to go there. So one author I was reading talks about um, a girl on a playground and she skins her knee and she runs over to her mommy and she's crying. And, and mommy says, well, I told you not to do this and this is why this happened. You see, you can't climb that and you tried to climb it and you fell and you skinned your knee. Do you understand? And the, the, the child goes, yes, mom, but it still hurts. Right? And that's how we react often. We know God is good and, and yet we, we often respond, but it still hurts. But it's still hurting does not disprove God's goodness to us. It perhaps shows that we have not understood God's goodness to us in its fullness. So, um, Job never receives an answer to his question of why. You have 42 chapters in the book of Job. There's never a definitive answer from God. In fact, Job is not privy to God and Satan's conversations going on in heaven. All he knows is that everything he owns is destroyed and all his children are dead. And the only thing he's got left is a nagging wife telling him to kill himself. That's a horrible way to be living. That's all he's got. And then he's got, on top of that, three friends that come in and say, Job, what did you do to deserve this? Thanks, guys. I've got boils all over my body. I've lost everything. And now you're blaming me. And we get chapter after chapter after chapter of of interaction. But in the end, God comes to Job and says, Hey, man, stand up on your feet. Put your clothes on. Answer my questions. Where were you? when I? And he begins to, to say these transcendent things. And Job says, put my hand over my mouth. I spoke before I knew what I was talking about. And God doesn't say, well, Job, let me tell you. Here's what happened. Satan came to my throne room and we talked. And I said, hey, watch this. Job will still be my, my child if you do this. He didn't, he didn't know that. So the answer is not given. But God's goodness is shown. Romans 9.19 Questioning God, Paul says, who are you, O oh man? Does the potter, I mean, does the clay speak to the potter? Hey, why'd you make me like this? So the, the point being there is oftentimes we go to God as if we have something to say to him, as if we have a great point that he hasn't thought of yet. And he says, who are you, clay? You get molded. You don't sit there and go, hey, I don't like my shape. That's not what happens. And so we have to be careful that we don't think that earthly suffering disproves God's goodness. You notice I did not solve anything there. That was on purpose. Number two, quickly, rejoice in God's goodness. Second Chronicles 6 um, shows us this um, in verse 41. It is the, uh, the so- Solomon is dedicating the temple and he says in his praise to God, Now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting pr- place. You and the ark of your might, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with, clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. We are to rejoice in God's goodness. For sake of time, we have to keep moving, but point number three is delight in God's goodness. We delight, we take joy in God's goodness. It is delightful to experience God's goodness. I put Proverbs 18.22 in there. Men, you should look that one up. That's a good one for you. Number four, be satisfied in God's goodness. Be satisfied in his goodness. Let God's goodness be enough. Let God's goodness help us learn to be content. Number five, imitate God's goodness. We are to imitate God's goodness. And again, the only way we can do this is by His Spirit who lives in us. We imitate God's goodness. We, we see how God is good in the Scriptures to His people and we imitate that. 
we say, how is God good to his people? Oh, that's how he's good. I need to do that too. Lastly, number six, anticipate God's goodness. That means from this point on, we anticipate God's goodness because Romans 8, 28 says, if you're a child of God, if you love the Lord, then he'll work everything for your good. He won't give you everything that's good. He will work in all situations for your good. So we anticipate God's goodness through trials, through pain, through heartbreak. And then we also look to Revelation 21 and 22 and see the new heavens and the new earth and we anticipate a whole lot of good. And it never says goodness in Revelation 21 and 22, but you see the parallels between Revelation 21 and 22 and Genesis 1 and 2. There's a garden in both places. There's a tree of life in both places. God is with his people in a different way in both places. So we anticipate that the goodness of God's original creation will not only be redone in the new heavens and the new earth but that it will be surpassed because we will be with him there will be no more night there will be no more tears it will be all good and we anticipate god's goodness and church we have tasted and we have seen god's goodness in the life of this church and we will continue to see god be good to us so let's respond in right ways to god's goodness to us And let's rejoice in God's goodness as we pray. Father, you are good to us. You have been good, you are good, and we know you will be good. So Lord, help us to cling to that truth. Help us to see that it is true no matter the circumstances and the situations in this life. And then though we wrestle with with sin and with evil and with disaster and tragedy, Lord, that we trust in your scriptures that you have given to us that reveal you are good. Above all sin and evil, you are good. Through and in sin and evil, you prove yourself to still be good. And in your blessings to us, we are abundantly shown your goodness. So we thank you, Lord, today for your goodness. May we go in your goodness. May we practice and do good. May we flee evil as we seek to be more and more like Jesus Christ, your son, who you've made us to be like and help us to pursue Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.